The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Luke chapter number one for our scripture reading this morning. Luke chapter number one. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us this morning. As we begin our Christmas mini-series, uh, The Call of Christmas. And this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter number one. Stand with me, if you would, as is our tradition around here at Ambassador Baptist Church. We're going to read verse number five. The Bible says in Luke one, verse number five, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. We just saw a little bit of his story in the video. Of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. In this passage, we'll see God use a family to prepare the entire world for the very first Christmas. Well, as you saw in the video a moment ago, we're starting a two-week series this week and next week, The Call of Christmas, and uh, today we're going to be looking at the subject of preparing for Christmas. We've got a week now to kind of prep ourselves for Christmas, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So let me give you some background uh, into this particular text, and then I'm going to be honest with you, uh, we're going to do a Bible study right through the chapter, all right? And so we're just going to spend some time going verse by verse through this chapter, looking at the preparation uh, for Christmas through the life of this family, Zacharias, often referred to as Zechariah, and Elizabeth, all right? So let me give you some background. Number one, uh, I want you to notice the Old Testament portion of Scripture. For those of you who are uh, newer to church, the Old Testament Scripture, those Scriptures written before uh, the life of Jesus Christ were written between 1450 B.C. and 430 B.C., and these Old Testament Scriptures contain a lot of what theologians refer to as messianic prophecies, all right? All throughout the Old Testament are these prophecies that point to this anointed one, uh, what was often referred to as the Messiah, this one who would come to rescue and save the nation of Israel, both spiritually and many believed politically as well. And so scholars suggest that in the Old Testament, there is about 300 of these messianic prophecies. And these are prophecies that literally could not have been manipulated. They were things that were very pointed in regards to where the Messiah would be born, when the Messiah would be born, how the Messiah would be born, not only about his birth, but also his life and his death. And these prophets would speak these messianic prophecies to prepare the nation of Israel for this coming Messiah, who we now know as being none other than Emmanuel, God with us, the person of Jesus Christ, literally God in the flesh. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the prophecies went silent. For literally 400 years, there was no divine word from the Lord. And you can imagine if you were one of those uh, that were part of the nation of Israel... And for hundreds of years, these prophecies were being given and the prophets would stand up and they would proclaim that this Messiah was coming. And then all of a sudden, a decade goes by and then several decades go by and then a hundred years and 200 years and 300 years. And literally, there's no prophet. There's no divine word from the Lord. You could imagine how that might start to concern those in the nation of Israel. Where's, where's God at? 
You used to speak so regularly, and, and now it seems like heaven is silent. And that's a little bit of where we find ourselves as we prepare here for this passage. You see, God is going to use this family to prepare the world for the coming Messiah and what we now refer to as the very first Christmas. So we're going to dive into that today. Let's just begin reading here. I'm going to just march our way through it. Verse, chapter, uh, verse number 5, I'll read down here through verse 6. The Bible says this, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judah a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abia. And his wife was the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, I'll say this. If you're familiar with the Old Testament passage of Scripture, you realize that there was a prophet by the name of Zechariah. This is not the Zechariah that's being referred to in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 1. These are two separate individuals. However, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, they both served the Lord faithfully throughout their entire lives. In fact, both of them were from the tribe of Aaron. For those of you who know a little bit about ancient Israel history, you will know that from the tribe of Aaron is where all the priests came from. In order to be a priest, in order to be a part of the religious system in this day and age, you had to be a descendant of the original priest there, Aaron. And so both of these individuals had a rich heritage serving the Lord as priests here. And so this was kind of their heritage, their parents, their grandparents. Uh, These were two, what we would refer to today as PKs, all right? You say, what's a PK? It's kind of a preacher's kid or a a pastor's kid, and that was the heritage of this particular family. Now, here in verse number five, it says that they were of the course of Abia, all right? There were 24 courses, or what we would refer to today as divisions of priests. There were 24 different ones, and the division of Abia was actually the eighth of those 24 divisions. And so Zechariah here was part of this division of priests that would serve the area that he was called to serve. And there were hundreds of priests in this particular division called Abia. So they would serve their hometown, and then twice a year, for a week at a time, all of the priests from their division would go to Jerusalem and they would serve at the synagogues and temples there in Jerusalem. And so they'd spend most of the year in, at home, and then every, twice a year, well, for a week long, they would go, and they would there serve at the main temple in Jerusalem. And that was kind of how these priests would work and how they would operate. Notice verse 7. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they were both, they both were now, notice this phrase, well stricken in years. Uh, we have our cliches today, little terms that we'll use to describe things. In ancient biblical times, well stricken was just a polite way to say they were really old, all right? And uh, they were, these were some old folks now at this point, far past the child-bearing years. And, and 
in our modern culture, there's not as much of a stigma that goes along with not having a child. Uh, some of you in this room, I know we've prayed with you uh, about having children. And, and uh, as we heard a few weeks ago from uh, Tim on uh, the Thanksgiving night, we had been praying for their family for a couple of years. And this last year, God gave them a child and they were just so grateful and so thankful for it. And so there are people in our midst who know the hurt and the pain of not being able to have children. But in ancient biblical times in Israel, it went beyond just an emotional pain. There was a cultural stigma that went along with not being able to have a child. There was a certain level of reproach. You see, the average person would look at you, and if if you didn't have any children, you would almost be viewed or judged as having have been cursed from God. There, There would almost be the stigma of like you were somehow, you have offended God in some way, and that's why he didn't give you a child. And there would now be none that could live on your name or preserve your legacy. And so there was a lot of a a reproach that went along with not having a child. There was a a certain stigma that went to it, and and you were often looked down upon if you didn't have a child. And as we're going to see in verse number 13, Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying for a child for many, many years, and yet God in his sovereignty and providence has not gifted this wonderful family, this family that's been serving the Lord, that has been faithful to God, that has been doing everything right, and yet God in his sovereignty has not chosen to give them a child and so you see if you notice carefully you'll see that there really is a parallel between the what some scholars and theologians refer to as the meta narrative of scripture or the macro narrative of scripture that is to say the the big story of scripture about this messiah that was going to come to earth and save humanity that's the meta narrative the macro narrative of scripture. So there is a parallel between that macro narrative and the micro narrative that we find in Luke chapter number one. In both of these narratives, in both of these stories, here the children of Israel, they're praying and they're hoping for the promise of a Messiah to come. In the micro narrative of uh, Zacharias and uh, Elizabeth, they're praying and hoping for a son. Israel, they're looking to the son of God to come and Elizabeth and, and uh, we see Zacharias, they're praying for a, a son to be brought into their family. But just like in the meta-narrative, the macro-narrative, all of a sudden there are 400 years of silence where like God doesn't speak and it sounds like heaven is silent. So for Elizabeth and Zechariah, they go through a season where it just doesn't feel like God is answering their prayers. I think it's very, very interesting that God uses this micro narrative this micro story to illustrate the macro story the meta narrative that's going on at this point in history do you see the parallels between the two and so God's going to use this story here to parallel the much bigger story that's taking place in this particular passage I don't know, have you ever been there before in your own life? Has, has your life's narrative, has your life's story ever followed the, the parallel arc of, of these two stories? That is, you're praying for something. God has promised in his word that he would do something. Have you ever found yourself in a moment as you were praying, as you were hoping, as you were pleading with God to do what only God can do? Have you ever found yourself in a moment where you felt like God was silent? For these children of Israel, the nation of Israel, for 400 years, it was like, 
is God even there anymore? For Zachariah and Elizabeth, it's like, man, is, is God even hearing our prayers anymore? And maybe you've been there. You're like, I'm praying. <laughs> I'm pleading with God. Like the nation of Israel, like, like, like Zachariah and Elizabeth, I'm doing everything that I know to do. I'm serving the Lord. I'm trying to be faithful. But it just feels like heaven's silent. It feels like it, my prayers are just not breaking through. You ever been there before? And you're like, What's the point? I think if we were honest with ourselves, every one of us have found ourselves in seasons like Zechariah found himself in. We've all found ourselves in seasons like the nation of Israel found themselves in, like, wow, 400 silent years? Like, God, what are you doing? You gave us this promise. This was not something we made up. You are the one who gave the prophecies. This wasn't our idea. You're the one who said this, not us. This isn't our agenda. God, this is, this is what you said. And it's like, what's going on now? Have you ever felt frustrated with God? Maybe even a little angry? Because for all of your pleading all of your prayers and all of your hopes and all of your dreams in areas that you feel like it's not even your idea this was this was this was God's idea that marriage that you felt is God's idea and all of a sudden it's like you're praying that God would restore a marriage and it's like it feels like heaven silent and God gave you that child who grew up and now wants nothing to do with you. And you're like, God, you're pleading for that child to come back into a relationship with you, into a relationship with God. And you're like, God, what are you doing? And, and when you pray, it just feels like your prayers are hitting a, a proverbial ceiling because you just feel like you're in a, a silent season. You been there? The psalmist David found himself there. He pleads out to God in Psalm 13, verse 1. He says, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? You ever been there? God, you put me on this planet, God. How long are you going to forget me? He, he, he adds insult to injury. He, go, he says this, like, like forever? Can you, can you sense the psalmist getting a little maybe sarcastic with God? How long are you going to forget me? Forever? How long will thou hide thy face from me? You say the believers of years gone by, they knew what it was to plead and to pray and to hope beyond hope and then feel the experience of nothingness. To feel like prayers are hitting a glass ceiling. To feel like heaven is silent. If you've ever experienced that, if you've ever felt that, I want to say to you today, it's normal. You're not the first person to feel that way. You're not the first person to experience that. All throughout the scriptures, we have illustrations of, of people that we would look to as being super believers, experiencing the exact same thing. Can I say this? When you're going through something really, really hard and, and wonder where God is as you're praying, just remember that the teacher is always quiet when they're giving you a test. <laughs> Trust in God. Trust in Him. 
You see, the reality is we can believe in the sun even when it's not shining. We believe in the moon even when we can't see it. And we can choose to believe in God even when he seems silent. That's our choice. Let's keep reading. Verse number 8. Luke chapter number 1, verse number 8 here. It says, And it came to pass that while he, Zechariah, executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, he goes on to say uh, in verse number 9, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was burn incense. His lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Verse number 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. So now as a priest, Zechariah would invest, like we said earlier, 50 weeks out of the year in his hometown, working in his hometown synagogue with several other priests there in his area. Uh, two weeks out of the year, he would take a week-long trip to go into Israel. He he would help to uh, do the duties of a priest there in Jerusalem. Uh, throughout the rotation, so there were 24 of these divisions. Abia was the eighth of the 24, and so each of these 24 divisions would spend two weeks in Jerusalem doing their equitable amount of sharing of priestly duties. Now, during these priests' time in Jerusalem, when a division would go and do the priestly duties in Jerusalem, there would be hundreds of these priests that would descend upon Jeru- Jerusalem. And so what they would do is they would cast lots. It was kind of an ancient version of drawing uh, names out of a hat or drawing straws to decide who was going to be the 14 individuals who were going to get to go into the, pre- uh, into the temple and burn incense. And it was a very, very special opportunity opportunity, a very rare opportunity that not very many people got to do. I don't know if they got a picture of what these might have looked like, but in these ancient times, they would draw these lots, like pulling names out of a hat. And Jewish uh, tradition described a priest who got to offer incense as a, they described him as being rich and holy for the rest of their life. It was, it was a very, very honorable thing to get chosen to be able to do this. And so on this particular day, as we read just a moment ago, this really would have been probably one of the most important days in Zechariah's life. Literally, this was a rare privilege. Literally, this probably wouldn't happen to Zechariah again. You got to imagine he's only going to be there a week. Out of all the hundreds of names, there's only going to choose 14. So in the morning and the late afternoon, these priest would burn incense to the Lord and so his name gets chosen and you could just imagine how excited he must have been you know I mean to be a priest Jewish tradition tells you that if you get chosen you are blessed you'll be rich that it's a holy experience to get chosen to do this uh, through uh, the drawing of these lots and so you could imagine how excited Zachariah was however you could also sense that underneath all of this excitement is still the subtle pain of not being able to have a child because for Zachariah and Elizabeth this was not a pain that just went away every time circumstances was good and maybe you're sitting here today and it's it's the Christmas season and you're super excited and there are things to look forward to and opportunities in front of you over the next week or two and and you're excited or maybe you find yourself in a season of blessing but underneath the blessing is just this subtle uh, pain in the background of your life. Do, Do you know what I'm talking about? 
That is, the circumstances of life in some degree are going well, but there's that thing in your life, and, and maybe it's a health situation. And maybe for others, it's a child who's, who's, who's far from God, and, and your relationship is strained. And, and maybe for others of you, it's something going on at work, and even when times are good, and even when you're at the party, and even when you're with the family, and even when circumstances and every other realm is going really good, there's just still that nagging pain, that, that shadow of hurt, that, that thing in the background of your life that just doesn't go away. And I'm sure this is exactly how Zechariah must have felt. Man, this is, this is one of the biggest days of his life. Once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. For a priest, this was big time. And yet the reality was he still didn't have a child. There was still the social cultural stigma that went along with it. I want to encourage you with this as we see in the life of Zechariah that God often gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers. And when God in his sovereignty And God in his providence allows you to go through difficult times. He does it in a way where he gives you the grace and the strength to endure. Let's keep reading verse 11. And there appeared unto him, Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, at this moment, Zechariah would have been putting frankincense into this uh, altar, all right? And so it was the priests who would burn frankincense. Uh, Many of you remember that the Magi brought frankincense later on uh, to Jesus Christ. And so here he was burning this frankincense, verse 12. And when Zechariah saw him, the angel, we're going to find out in a moment that this is Gabriel, the archangel. The Bible says Zechariah was troubled and fear fell upon him. Now, I want to say this, Zacharias in this moment, he was absolutely terrified. And the reality is this, oftentimes when, when God is, is, is getting ready to break through, that it's in those moments that life can get really, really scary. You see, God's about to do something really big here. God's getting ready to do something really exciting and yet here is Zechariah and he is literally scared to death as Gabriel the archangel literally appears out of nowhere and the Bible just says he is absolutely terrified and I want to remind you today sometimes life is scariest when God is getting ready to do a miracle when God is getting ready to break through and so if you find yourself right now in a moment and you're terrified and you're thinking what in the world's going on and it feels like everything is falling apart it might be the moment where God is actually tearing things apart so he can put it all back together the way it's supposed to be and that's what's happening here He's terrified. Zechariah is scared out of his mind, but God is doing something big. And you might be going through something really terrifying right now. And it might be scary and overwhelming, and you might be scratching your head thinking, God, what are you doing? And it might be God just putting all the pieces back together again. It may be God breaking through in this moment. Oh, look what he's doing here. 
I want you to see this is Gabriel in this particular passage, as we're going to see in verse number 19 as we get there. Uh, Gabriel, the archangel, he's going to appear four times in the scripture to three different individuals. He appears to Daniel in the Old Testament to bear good news. He actually appears to Daniel on two occasions. In this passage, he appears here to Zechariah, and then he's also going to appear to Mary later on and announce the birth of the Messiah through the Virgin Mary here. And so some scholars believe that Gabriel might have also appeared to Joseph uh, in his dream, but since the scriptures doesn't actually say, we don't really know which of the angels it was at that time. And, and let me just pause here for just a moment. Uh, we as Christians do believe of angels. It is something that the Bible talks about. It is something that is declared as true. But I will say this, every time you see an angel in the scriptures, it is always for the purpose of pointing people's attention toward God's will and the person of Jesus Christ. I've met Christians and literally uh, people and, and you get around them and they like talk more about angels and this angel and that angel and they're like more preoccupied and focused with angels than they are with the person of Jesus. And uh, I'll just encourage you with this. While angels are in the scripture, the focus is always the person of Jesus Christ. And he always stays front and center in this. In fact, Hebrews chapter number 13 says this. Some have entertained or engaged angels unawares or unknowingly. The Bible literally says there might be some in this room right now and you've engaged an angel unknowingly. It's something the Bible says does happen, but we don't want to get fixated on it. We don't want to get focused on it. The focus of the scriptures is the person of Jesus Christ, but it's something that we see in this passage and something that the Bible says continues to play out uh, in our lives. Verse number 13, let's keep reading it. But the angel said unto him, fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard. He's been praying for a son. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall return to the Lord their God. God's going to use John, the son of these people who are in their old age, to turn the hearts of the people back to God. Verse 17, the Bible says, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who God used mightily to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people notice this phrase prepared for the lord now i just want to simply remind you of this this is often how god works zachariah though he doesn't have a child he's been praying for many years just continues to be faithful to the work of the lord he doesn't throw up his hands and say, well, since God hasn't answered my prayers and since God's been silent for these 400 years, I mean, after all, this is kind of a rough time to be a priest. I mean, if the people who went to your church and literally for 400 years, they were getting no fresh experience from God, people would be scratching their head. This is a hard time to be a priest. It was a hard time for him because he did not have a child. And yet here's Zacharias saying, in the midst of the circumstances, in the midst of the difficulty, I'm going to experience God's grace to be faithful. 
I'm going to keep doing what God's called me to do. I'm going to keep faithful to what God's called me to be faithful. I know we haven't heard from God for 400 years. I know it doesn't seem like God's answering my personal prayers, but this doesn't cause Zachariah to quit. And I want to encourage our church family with this. When you find yourself going through seasons where it feels like heaven is silent, when it feels like God is not answering your prayers, when you don't get all the exciting emotional euphoria that comes with some religious experience, I want to encourage you with this. Like Zachariah, experience God's grace to be faithful because we're not looking to an emotion we're looking to God and I want to say this God is faithful even when he appears to be silent he's faithful and so here's Zechariah just being faithful he got called to go to Jerusalem and so he went He was serving faithfully in his synagogue, in his church, being faithful. He got picked to go into the holies of holies, and so he did that which he was called to do. He was just faithful year after year, decade after decade, in the midst of a difficult career, we could say, because of the 400 years of silence, but also personally in his family because he can't have a child And yet he stays faithful. And I want to encourage you, regardless of what's going on in your career, regardless of what's going on in your personal life, oh, that we can know that God, who is faithful to us, can empower us to be faithful back to him. And that's the heart and the grace that is offered to us as we go to the word of God. My friends, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. And when you're feeling weak, because you're not getting a particular answer to prayer and when you're not experiencing the emotional euphoria of your religious experience, I want to say this, that you can experience God's sustaining grace even in the midst of those dark valleys. God is going to prepare, God is going to use this family to prepare the world for the coming Messiah and this very first Christmas. It's, it's a promise. Let's keep reading verse number 18. And Zechariah said unto the angel, whereby shall I know this? Basically, Zechariah is saying, how do I know this is going to be true? He says, I'm an old man and my wife well stricken in years. There he goes using that phrase again. Verse 19, the Bible says this. He says, and the angel answered unto him. I want you to see this. Um, Verse number 18. Basically what's happening here as Zechariah is doubting the word of God. Gabriel comes. He speaks on behalf of God. And the first thing out of Zechariah's mouth is words of doubt. Unbelief. You say, how do you know that? In the next few verses, the angel is going to say, because of your unbelief, he was able to discern the heart of what was being said. It was unbelief taking place here. Have you ever found yourself in a place like Zechariah? Where as you looked at the circumstances, I mean, that's all Zechariah is doing. It's not like he's doubting. The reason he's doubting is because he's looking around. How am I going to have a kid? Look how old I am. We haven't had a kid yet. There's no way my wife's having a kid. He looked at the circumstances. He made a logical conclusion. And the logical conclusion was it ain't happening. It was logical. Everybody, who, everybody would agree with him. Even his church friends would agree with him. 
And so Zechariah, he speaks words of doubt in the face of the promise of God. And, and if we were to be honest, all of us have been there. Have you ever been to a place where you've doubted God's word, where you've doubted God's promises because the circumstances around you just seemed, you know, insurmountable? Have you been there? God's word's clear. The divine has spoken. He has said that which is true and just and right. And we look at God's word and we doubt. Why? Because we look at the circumstances and we say there's no way. It's impossible. Have you ever been there before? This is where Zechariah finds himself. So the angel answers in verse 19 and says unto him, he's after, after Zechariah says, how is this going to be? And how, how does this going to come to pass? And the angel answered and said unto him, I am Gabriel that stands in the presence of God. This is, this is how he answers. I am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. Verse 20, and behold, he says, thou shalt be dumb. Now, he's not saying he's going to be retarded. What he's saying, he's not going to be able to speak. Until the day that these things shall be performed, until the promise comes to fruition, Gabriel says, because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled. Notice this. This is a great phrase. In their season. See, some of you, you don't just pray for something. You don't just, you don't just claim the promises of God. You say, God, I want you to do your promise, but I want you to do it on my timetable. You ever been there before? God, yes, this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. And this is when you're going to do it. And then all of a sudden, when God doesn't do it, when you told him to, you doubt and in this passage, the Gabriel says, hey, God promises to do this. He will do it, but mark this down. He's going to do it his way, and he's going to do it in his timetable. And here's what Gabriel's saying. You can trust God. You can trust God with his timing. You can trust that God's way is the best way. And I know you're looking at the circumstances right now and you're saying, man, this is not the way I would have chosen to be a parent. This is not the way I would have chosen for my health condition to move forward. This is not the way I would have chosen, you know, to, to navigate this season of life. And God's saying, in my sovereignty and in my providence, this is what I've chosen for you and this is how I've chosen it for you and you can trust me. Now, according to verse number 24 in a moment, we're going to find out that Elizabeth hasn't conceived as of this moment yet. It hasn't happened. So literally nothing. It's not even like, well, she conceived and she's going to have a child. As of this moment, when Gabriel is saying this, she's not even conceived. The, the, thing, the promise hasn't even started yet. And sometimes we question, how is this going to happen? And, and, and I just want to say this. I love what Gabriel says. He says, he says I'm... I, I love some of the subtle sarcasm that I sometimes read as I go through the Bible, and I, I don't know if it's just my personality that catches it, but here in this passage, Gabriel's just like, how's it going to happen? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the God of the universe, and he told me so. You want to know how it's going to happen? Because God said so. The same God that said, let there be light, and there was light. The same God that said, you know, let the world be made into its existence, and it was made into ex that existence. Gabriel says, that 
that same God, he also spoke into your situation. And it's going to come to pass, and you can trust him. Now, I, I want to say this because that moment Gabriel says, okay, I'm not, you're not going to speak until this thing comes to fruition. And this is, I don't, we don't want to miss this. Doubt is a big deal to God. Unbelief is a big deal to God. It doesn't cause him to love you less. It doesn't cause him to not like you. But it does limit your influence, your ability to glorify God, your ability to experience all the wonders of his grace. Doubt will keep you from that experience. Doubt will keep you from that fulfillment. Doubt will keep you from glorifying God in that way. So here's what God does. Here's what the Gabriel does in this situation. He says, I'm going to silence you until this thing comes to pass. And I'm going to say, God, this is such a big deal to God. Doubt and unbelief is such a big deal to God that he will silence your voice if you choose to use it in a negative, unhealthy way. At times, he'll silence your voice He'll silence your influence. He'll keep you from being able to be and glorify in the way. Why? Because you're using what God has given to you against God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. What we need today are Christians and people who know how to speak healthy words of faith into the environments around them who know how to declare God's word, even in the midst of situations and circumstances that seem impossible, that we would be a people of faith, a people who believe that God can do what only he can do regardless of the situation and not put our heads in the sand and pretend reality doesn't exist. I'm talking about knowing the reality but still having a heart of optimism and faith and expectation and anticipation, believing that even in these days, God can work. And even in this situation, God is bigger than this because we serve a God that is big. We serve a God that is strong. We serve a God that is mighty and we can trust him. That's what we're talking about today. In the midst of your darkest valley, In the midst of your most horrible pain, God is still faithful. God is still working. And you have a choice to make. When God gives us a promise from his word, you're either going to get focused on all the little obstacles or you're going to focus on your very big God. And it's your choice. And it will make all the difference in your emotional state. You choose. Because what you see is what you'll get. And if all you choose to look at and focus on is the negative and the broken and the circumstances on why it can't and why this can and why God's promises are not true and why the world's, you know, this way and all this and all that and you're just, this this heart of doubt and this heart of unbelief, I'm just here to say, you'll miss out. And Zechariah does. For the next nine months, his voice is silenced. Verse 21. And the people waited for Zechariah, because you remember, he went into the temple. They're waiting for him outside the temple. 
and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple, you know? Uh, sometimes your friends wonder when you go to church, why are they tarrying so long at church? You know, long-winded pastor, all right? That's what they're wanting. How's he so long in the temple? What's going on here? Verse number 19, and uh, he says, and be, um, I'm sorry, in verse 21, and they, the people waited for Zechariah, and they marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. Verse number 22 here says, and when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision, for, uh, a vision in the temple, and he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. Verse 23, and it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration or the ministry, that one week while he was there in Jerusalem were accomplished, he departed to his own house, all right? Went back to the division of Abia. Verse 24, and after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Now, I'm no doctor, but here was Elizabeth. She's up in age, probably somewhat feeble. Some of the ladies here in this room, you're up in age. You could imagine what pregnancy would do to your body physically at your age. It probably wouldn't be easy. I could imagine the morning sickness that comes along. All of a sudden, you know, here you are at your age. Imagine this. I mean, some of you who are, who, are, who are grandparents, think about this. All of a sudden, you find out, God's giving you a promise, you're having a baby. <laughs> Whoa. And all of a sudden, how that, what that would do to you physically. And I would imagine for Elizabeth, physically speaking, it probably wasn't very comfortable. Here God has just given them a promise and now all of a sudden she finds out, oh wow, a promise is coming and next morning, morning sickness. <laughs> wow, lucky me. You say, what's the point? The point is simply this. Sometimes when God answers a prayer, it gets difficult before it gets good. As we say, some, there's oftentimes there's struggling in the solution, there is pain in the promise, and usually it gets harder before it gets easier. And, and this is where some of us miss out on the promises of God. Because we think when God answers the promise, when God does what only God can do, then everything's going to be a walk in the park. And what I'm here to say to you is sometimes when God's answering the prayer, and when, sometimes when God's doing his work, sometimes it does get more difficult, and sometimes it does get harder before it gets easier. But here's Elizabeth recognizing, hey, if God gave a promise, then we can, we can follow through. Verse number 57. We're going to skip down a, a while here because we were in verse number 25. From verses 26 to 56, we're, we, we see the story where Gabriel appears to Mary. And uh, so then that's, that's what's happening. And, and then what we're going to see here is uh, four, four months has, has gone by. Five months has gone by now. And uh, we pick it up back in verse 57. The story with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Verse 57 says this. Now, Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered and she brought forth a son and her neighbors and her cousins heard how the lord had shown great mercy upon her and they rejoiced with her and it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they called him the child the people around his her, their family called the baby zachariah after the name of his father verse 60 but his mother answered and said not so but he should be called john and they said unto her 
there is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. They said, none of your family. In, in, in ancient biblical times, you would name children after their family, and that's not what's happening here. And verse 62, and they made signs to his father how he would have him be called. So they say, okay, forget you, Elizabeth. We're going to find out what, you know, dad thinks. And so they ask him, what do you, Zechariah, what do you think they should name him? And he asked for a writing table and wrote saying, his name is John. And they all marveled again. They were stunned. What in the world's going on? Verse number 64. And at that moment, his mouth was open immediately. You see the moment faith entered in, all of a sudden his voice came back. We see this and his tongue loosed and he spake. I love this. And praised God. The first thing out of his mouth after all these months of not being able to talk, he praises God. He goes on to say, verse 65, and fear came on all that dwelt round about them, and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judah, and all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And that's What's going on? And you say, what, what do you see here? And I simply see this. Here, the baby's born. The family says, you're going to name him Zechariah, right? And they say, no, we're not naming him Zechariah. We're going to name him John. Now, you say, what's significant about this is, the, is this thought. Um, it's often easy to forget God's plan after he fulfills the promise. And I see this happen all the time. There's a person in the church, and they're praying for God to do something. They're praying for a promise. They're praying for God to do what only God can do. And the moment God does it, all of a sudden, a week, two weeks, two months goes by, and they start to forget God's will. They start to forget God's plan. They start to forget God and the whole situation. And I'm here to say this. That was not the character that we find in Zechariah and Elizabeth. Nine months has gone by. God has already given the promise, and they still, in this moment, remember what God had said. They still remembered God's plan. They still remembered God's will. Yes, it might have been better to name him after the family, so Zechariah's heritage, so his legacy could live on and that would be a big deal to a dad who only had one son to have his name be carried on through his child so this wasn't just a well we flipped through a baby name book and we like this one better than this no in that day and age it would be cultural for you to name your first son in such a way that would carry on the the legacy and yet Zechariah said it's not about my legacy it's about his legacy And even though the promise has always come to fruition, I'm not going to forget God now that it's good. And how many of us all of a sudden, man, we're seeking God when the job and we need new work and then all of a sudden we don't have enough money and, and people run to my office and pray for me, pastor, I got this health situation, I need this money, I need this job and all of a sudden I'll do anything and they're faithful to God and faithful to the church and all of a sudden God gives a promise, God blesses, God does what only God can do is they align their hearts with his will and the first thing you know it's like, oh, where did so-and-so go? People love, love, love running after God when they have needs. But here was a family that said, even after the promise was delivered, we're still going to remember what God said. We're still going to remember God's will. And I want to encourage you with this. Even when God does his work in your life, don't forget God in the good times. When things are going well, when things are going good. Deuteronomy chapter number four, verse nine says, only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently. And notice this, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, but teach them to thy sons and to thy son's sons. And, And what's being reminded to us in Deuteronomy is, hey, don't forget what God's done when things get good. In fact, teach them to your kids. Help your kids see why God is so good. 
Teach them to your grandkids. Help them see why this is so important. Let's keep reading verse number 67. The Bible says in verse 67, it says, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying he's going he's to start praising God here. And he breaks off into what many scholars believe is a song. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. He's talking about the coming Messiah. Messiah's coming. And he says here, And hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. He's talking about these messianic prophecies. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. You see, God had made a covenant. We talked about this early, earlier in the year with Abraham. Oh, he made it, verse 73, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, shalt chi- and thou child, shall be called the prophet of the highest for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. John the Baptist is going to u- be used to prepare the way of the Lord. We'll see this later on to give knowledge of salvation unto his people. Notice this by the remission of their sins. And I want to remind you today that is the only way you get to heaven, not through baptism, not through good works, not through becoming part of a denomination. The Bible is clear. The only way to salvation is through, through, through the remission of your sins. You need every one of your sins completely eradicated. And this is how it happens through the person of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, and he's, he's singing about this. He's praising this, verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadows of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The first thing Zechariah does once God opens his mouth is he praises the Lord. Oh, for years and years, he struggled with the weight of not being able to have a child, that stigma that reproach bared upon him and now all of a sudden his voice is opened he has a child and he praises the lord second corinthians chapter number four verse 17 says for our light affliction which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory and i'll say this as we saw in our narrative in the passage this morning only god can turn a mess into a message Only God can turn a trial into a triumph and only God can turn a victim into a victor. And that's exactly what we see played out by God's grace today. So in the midst of incredible pain, in the midst of incredible difficulty, God uses this family to prepare the world for the coming Messiah and the very first Christmas. So here's the question I want to ask you as we wrap it up. How are you going to prepare for the very next Christmas? In the midst of all your hurts, in the midst of all of your pain, in the midst of all of your difficulties, will you allow God's grace to sustain you? Will you allow his grace to keep you? And will you continue to trust God through it all? And with your heart, crowd and say, it's well, it's well. How are you going to prepare for the next Christmas? In the middle of middle of everything you've got going on and all the pain and all the difficulty what's your heart posture as you approach this christmas season thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the ambassador baptist church if this message was a blessing to you please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media thanks once again for tuning in